Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at the U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about watershed planning and nitrate reduction. We have three panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Yes, good morning, Wayne Cords. I uh, work for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. Um, I most recently got promoted, but for many years, eight years, I was the watershed uh, manager of the South District. Um, so I covered a lot of the Minnesota River, the uh, Missouri River, the uh, Des Moines River, and then the Southeast Minnesota, Mississippi River portions of the state. But I also have a lot of background in uh, other aspects. Uh, I've been on a local soil and water board for more than 23 years. I was elected that, to that position back in 2000. So I have a lot of experience with um, practices and what practices go on the landscape and what uh, practices seem to be uh, acceptable to most farmers. I am also a farmer and to be full disclosure, I'm not a huge farmer. Most, uh, most people would say I'm a small time farmer and I don't deny that, but it allows me to see how practices uh, affect uh, crop production, uh, what it does to the bottom line kind of stuff. So I have a whole background in that. Um, and I also uh, spent many years in the feedlot program, both at the county level and the state level. So I see how manure management and all that relates to uh, uh, nutrients and how that affects crop production and so forth. And as a farmer, I also get manure from a neighbor. So I understand, you know, the, the benefits and sometimes the, the consequences of manure application. Uh, this is uh, Jeff Strzok. I'm a professor and soil scientist with the University of Minnesota and uh, have the good fortune to be located uh, at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. I've been working a lot with uh, nutrient management issues and and really looking at uh, trying to help farmers balance uh, crop production uh, goals and, and trying to meet uh, environmental quality goals. And, and really kind of my focus has been looking at drainage and water quality issues and, and trying to uh, do, uh, do research on edge of field practices, some infield practices uh, to have those be uh, well-researched and try to answer a lot of the the questions that farmers would have about implementation of those types of practices. Brad Carlson, I'm an extension educator. I work out of the regional office in Mankato, but I work statewide. Uh, I do a lot of work with water quality issues, uh, really focusing a lot on nitrogen over the last several years. I've been working a lot with the Pollution Control Agency lately on the uh, upcoming revision of the nutrient reduction strategy, but I've worked uh, very closely with Minnesota corn growers for many years also, uh, working to be proactive on water quality and environmental issues. And so we uh, um, have a, we've been doing, of course, the nitrogen smart program for many years. We've got the advanced nitrogen smart curriculums. We've got a brand new one that will be rolling out here uh, very soon uh, on reducing nitrate loss to water. And it really just kind of plays in well to this topic here today. What are watershed plans and what goes into them? So maybe we should start with a little history of uh, water planning in the state of Minnesota. So uh, there's a, been a long history of water planning in Minnesota, but uh, for the most part, uh, the earlier plans were more local plans that were driven by political borders. So counties uh, had their own water plan, and that's been in place for many years here in Minnesota. And it, it was working, um, but we see that uh, water crosses political boundaries and doesn't seem to care where it goes. And so we had to look at a bigger scale. But what drove a lot of this was back in the early 2000s, there was um, Annadale Maple Lake uh, wanted to build a new wastewater treatment facility. 
And so they had put in a permit to the MPCA to say, hey, we want to build this facility. Um, but federal law doesn't allow uh, new facilities to be built unless they know how much uh, pollution they're going to put into the water um, if there's an impaired water downstream of them. So in this case, there was uh, an impairment downstream for, for nutrients. Um, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency saw that the need for this uh, plant was there. So they issued uh, a permit for the, the wastewater treatment plant. Well, they were sued saying you can't issue a permit if you can't tell how much pollution can be taken by that local water. So this drove us into a, a method of um, total maximum daily loads, which is a federal um, report that says, it basically is a, a recipe as to how much pollution uh, can be put into water and still meet water quality standards. So at that point, uh, we didn't have this TMDL done for that, that, that water, um, but it takes a long time. Uh, so we, we were sued and they won in court. And so that put a whole big uh, worry into the system because now it, it didn't allow any permits to be issued across the state if there was an impairment downstream of where that, that uh, project was going in. Um, the agency, the pollution control agency was like, uh, it took about five to 10 years to do these, uh, these TMDL reports, um, cost you know, around $100,000 and yet we had hundreds of impairments across the state. So we knew we had to do something quicker and faster. So then we developed what they call the watershed approach where we didn't look at individual streams anymore. We looked at the entire watershed. Um, and so across the state, we have 80 watersheds that we monitor at. They're the, the HUC 8 level, which is basically just a unit of uh, measurement. Um, but basically it comes around a, a major stream uh, in an area. So like the down here in Southern Minnesota, the Lisua River, the Blue Earth River, the Watanwan River, the Redwood Cottonwood, those are all individual watersheds. So we took upon the self and we said, we need to turn out these reports faster. Um, so we developed a process where we go in and do the entire watershed monitoring and doing studies in there. And we get it done in four years. And we developed a report uh, called the Watershed Restoration and Protection Strategy Report or RAPS is what most people commonly call it. And that and its companion, the TMDL report allowed practice or, or allowed new permits to come in they knew how much pollution they could put in and still meet uh, water quality standards and so forth. So the RAPS is the, the science. It, it is the, the modeling. It is the, the, the going out and studying people in the streams, looking at uh, the fish and bugs. It is all the monitoring. It's all in one report. And it also has a very large overall strategy. How do we make that watershed come into compliance with any impairments in that watershed? You know, so we're looking across the state right now. We have approximately uh, 2,900 uh, water bodies in the state right now. They're impaired for about 4,300 impairments. So some some streams and lakes are impaired for more than one thing. Usually, it's usually nitrogen or nutrients, and sediment is common in streams. Uh, lakes is mostly nutrients. So we have a large problem across the state. But this watershed approach allowed us to understand how much problems we had in the state. We didn't have this before. And, and really we're about the only state in the nation that has this much data across our entire state, across all our waters. So once we had the science done and we had the total maximum daily load done so that we knew how much pollution could go, go in, we needed to have plans at the local level as to how we will fix those problems. Because individually, each washhead is unique. We can't just have a plan across the state. We, we can have a general plan, but it doesn't fit Sometimes, in, I mean, you look at across the state, northwest to southeast, we have a huge range of land use, climate change, all that is happening there. 
So we can need to have the local water plan. So my the sister agency here, Bowser, Border Soil and Water Resources, uh, developed the One Watershed One Plan, which was taking those major watersheds and developing a plan for the entire watershed at one time. So you didn't have four or five counties having individual plans. Those four or five counties in that watershed came together and worked to see what they needed to do to fix things. And they had progress. Um, they developed progress as quickly, how quickly they could do it, but also practices. They also prioritize and target because uh, we have a lot of problems out there and we just don't have enough funds. So we got to prioritize and target a lot of this stuff. Uh, we'd love to fix everything right away, but um, we don't have that. But we do have the luxury of the, the Clean Water Legacy Act, which allowed that three-eighths of a cent sales tax um, that is funding a lot of this work in the, at the local level. So now these one watershed, one plans, it is a strictly a local plan. It is driven by the, the counties, the soil water districts. And if there's a watershed district in that area, they come together and they decide what is gonna be the priorities where we're gonna target, where are the practices, and how quickly we can fix everything in the watershed. They have input from the state, but really that decision is driven at the local level. They go out and talk to uh, the local people in the area. They get their feelings on what they think should be done, what practices they think they could do. And there's a policy team and there's a technical team that come together, devise a plan that is a 10-year plan with a five-year update uh, as to what they think they can accomplish in that time frame. And many of these, the, the problem is big. So they develop milestones as to what they think they can accomplish in the next five to 10 years. Um, the nice part about all this process, it's a plan, do, check. So uh, we plan it, we do it. And every 10 years, we're coming back to the same watershed and doing all this monitoring and all the science again to see if we made any improvements. Um, and as far as where they, they work in that watershed, that's really to local levels, but they have ways they can prioritize their, their issues. It can be, we can work at the worst waters first. We can work at ones that are high quality recreation areas first, uh, or they can work on what they call the nearly barelys. They're nearly impaired or barely impaired. Those are the easy fixes, but that's all the local decisions to make. It's not the states. So it is really a locally driven plan that helps people uh, work. And it's also the knowledge of those local technical people, the soil and water boards, the local water planners who understand what's acceptable in that area and what practices are likely to succeed and likely to be adopted is, is a big thing too, because the state could come in and say, hey, we need X, Y, Z, but if the local people don't implement it, it doesn't make sense. So it's really about getting practices that people wanna do that are successful and that gets back to our water quality standards. So I'm kind of curious, Wayne, you, we talked or you talked about impaired waters, and I mentioned the state's nutrient reduction strategy, which is not necessarily part of the impaired waters, but it's uh, it's uh, something that we're also being tasked with addressing. Uh, uh, we certainly have some some uh, goals that uh, there's national goals and, and Minnesota is expected to do our part. Um, so, so there's that little aspect. And then there's also kind of off to the side, uh, the whole uh, issue with, with groundwater that the Department of Ag's been dealing with this, particularly in Southeast Minnesota, where there's karst uh, geology, as well as some of the sandy areas. Uh, they did the township level testing and some townships had elevated levels of, of nitrate in, in well water. Um, how do both of these things that are not part of the impaired waters 
uh, issue end up playing in the local water, the local water plans? So that's the unique thing about local water plans. They look at it at a holistic viewpoint. So they have that groundwater issue. They, they look at that. They have the, the, the statewide nutrient induction strategy. They have that. They have the local priorities, which, which are in there. And they also look at uh, other DNR reports that may be out there about uh, aquatic uh, um, habitat. Um, so they, they look at all that and put it all into one report. So we don't have... Um, 20 different reports that we're reporting to. We have one report that pulls in information from all those different reports. So like uh, some watersheds don't have a big issue with nitrates in their own watershed, but they contribute to the big overall aspect of it downstream. So while they may not have um, a specific goal in mind at that uh, local level, they also keep that overall state goal of 25% reduction in their plan. So they may implement some practices that help reduce that overall loading. So that's the nice thing about the local water plan. It takes all those other reports that people may not know about, but the, just the technical people may know about and brings them into one so people can see how everything works together. And, and that's what the, the beauty of it is, is, and that's why we went away from our old practice of doing one single watershed at a time or one single stream segment that the water is always flowing somewhere. So this, the watershed approach looked at it a holistic view and allowed us to bring in all these other plans together and see how they fit together and make it just one plan so they don't have to say, oh, we're doing this, this, and this. It came back to, we're adopting our plan, which addresses all these other plans and requirements. And so crossing over, Wayne, on your role with the uh, the County Soil and Water Conservation District, so, so what role do those play uh, in, in the in the formation, you know, particularly where you're an elected uh, supervisor versus the staff, uh, and what role would just the average farmer play if they have interest in being involved in in the development and and how the plans get uh, get uh, implemented locally? Right now, we're I think about two thirds done with the state with local water planning. Uh, many more are still in the process, uh, so getting in touch with their local either soil and water district or their local water plan to see where they're at in that process. Many, all of them start, all the water plans had to have an initial civic engagement opportunity where um, they sent out uh, flyers and stuff. They, they had different ways they, they engaged the public as to get their ideas, their priorities, their practices, things that they would think they could implement. Um, There's a whole civic engagement aspect of that, the plan. And it comes out once the plan is written, it goes out for public comment and so people can comment on that too so um, across the state there's many at different stages many are done i would say uh, statewide we're close to maybe half done um, and then there's a, another quarter that are in the progress and uh, a few that are yet to be done too that haven't even started the process so their best bet is to talk to their local soil and water board or local uh, water planner to see where they're at that plan to see where they can be involved um, but that's part of the uh, process too. The policy has not only the elected officials of the county, but they would get representatives from different aspects of uh, land use in that county. So farmers, um, if there was industry, uh, the cities, they would all have a say in that policy uh, group that made that final plan when they when it gets to it. 
when it comes to implementing practices, because that's kind of where we're headed uh, uh, with this podcast, we're going to start talking about uh, s- some of our university research and, and practices and their performance. Um, h- how has this played out as far as uh, that pool of funding and and um, the amount of money and how much stuff you've been able to accomplish? Um, I, I think, I guess I'll just throw out from my own personal perspective because uh, we put in a number of practices on my own property. Uh, we own farmland in Lesueur County and in Waseca County. And I and, uh, know you you also are a landowner and you farm and you've done things also. Um, how many, I guess, for lack of a better term, how many waves of funding uh, is it probably going to take? Because it feels like at least to start with, what we've mostly taken care of is a lot of the stuff that's been just sort of outstanding that's on a wait list. Uh, there hasn't been funding to address it. Um, we haven't been able to yet go out and 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 play offense to go out and start, you know, actually finding spots that need to be addressed and, and interacting with landowners. Um, wh- where are we at with that whole process? So, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, in different parts of the states, we're at different levels of that. Uh, South Central, we have a lot of problems out here that we have to address, and we we just don't have enough money to address all of them. And that's the nice thing about this. We have that dedicated funding from the Clean Water Fund, that that sales tax that we, we voted in in 2008, um, and it goes for another uh, 12 years here yet. Um, that is going to pump a lot of money into it, but it's still not enough money to uh, fix a lot of the problems we have. So we have to prioritize and target a lot of those. So while we, um, in the past, uh, we were trying to get as many done as possible. We didn't have the uh, the funding, of course, but it comes down to now we're gonna prioritize and target. So we may have to say no to some people to actually go to areas that we feel is a higher priority that if we get something fixed here, uh, it's gonna make a bigger difference in the water. So. Um, that's where that prioritizing targeting came in. And that's why um, we have this modeling and all the science about here's where the problems are. Well, you, you may have an issue on your farm uh, and we, we can try to get to you in the watershed approach. We're going to actually be targeting areas. So we're going to say, hey, the Lesueur River in this this area, we're going to we're going to really work in this area. While we may have problems further away, um, we just don't have enough money at the point. So we're going to target in this area. Uh, and that's where the, the collaboration between all the, the local partners in this watershed approach. Before, money was divvied out to each county, each soil and water district, and they chose how to use it individually within their own political boundaries. Where the watershed approach is giving money to the watershed, so we may, in the case of the, like, the Lesueur River, um, we may spend a lot of money in Blue Earth County one year and no money in Waseca County the next year or this year. Um, but in the next year, it may flip-flop. All the money spent in Waseca County and not in, in uh, Blue Earth County. But that's part of that whole process of developing this plan is to know where we should spend that money because we don't have an unlimited fund. I mean, we don't have that checkbook that has unlimited funds. So we really got to target those areas that are right now um, the biggest buying for the buck or the locals identified them as a priority. So like I said, there's different ways you can prioritize. You can prioritize that hey, we're going to work on the worst spot first, or we can work on the the nearly barelys, which gives an opportunity to have that quick win that, hey, we're just barely impaired. If we do these three things, it might get us unimpaired. And we have a lot of success with that. You know, I I mentioned earlier that we have about uh, 4,300 impairments across the state. 
And while that seems to be a lot, it's because we know that data now, but we've made progress in the last few years. Um, we've delisted or they've become unimpaired about 180 of uh, water bodies have become unimpaired in the last uh, 10 years. It doesn't sound like much, um, but knowing that we got to go back and test some stuff now to see if it's if the, the projects are working. So that's, as we go each year, as we monitor more each year, we'll see more of that come back and saying, hey, we've made this improvement and this improvement. And really, uh, if we look at it, to continue this funding, it has to be revoted back in because um, it was a, a, a vote, an amendment uh, that got us this money as a clean water fund. So we got to show improvement across the state. Like I said, it seems like a lot of money, but when you really come down to practices, I, I know just last year, uh, the legislators put in a million dollars for water storage in um, the Minnesota River Basin. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you start thinking that one project can be a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, so you can get maybe five to ten projects across the entire Minnesota River Basin, it, that doesn't make hardly a dent in the water quality issues that we see. So. Yeah, we got to prioritize and target this, and we got to know where we can go with the money. Now, the nice thing is, this is a separate pot of money. We still have our traditional funding sources. We still have um, the the local grants that come into the local soil and water board they can use within their own political boundaries. And the other aspect is, we also have the federal money in, which has been a huge player in the state of Minnesota, um, and they have a lot of money coming in in the next couple of years with the. Uh, um, some of the bills that have been passed to promote more conservation funding. So we're really at a good point in time where we can really make a difference in the state of Minnesota if we put the practice on the landscape. Now, all this comes down to willing landowners. So knowing who's gonna, who's willing to do what is an important play in this too, that, hey, if we say we're gonna fund, uh, um, let's say uh, water retention with WASCOBs, uh, water and sediment control basins, uh, but no one wants to put them in, well, we just wasted, or we didn't waste the money, but no, we're not spending the money to put the practice in. They all want to do, let's say, cover crops. Well, we got to understand who wants to do what and where and what the benefit of those practices are. So that all comes back to that local water planning, knowing what they're willing to do, does it make sense, and will it make a difference? And that's all part of that planning process. Yeah, for the record, I put in four wascobs, uh, what, two years ago? Yep. I, I have a wasp hob. I like it. I never anticipated that it would ever hold that much water when they put it in there. The, the berm was like six feet tall. I'm like, well, there's no way that that, water, I, that much water comes through that area. Well, the next year it was full to the top of that berm. I'm like, I never anticipate that much water moved through that. It is a flat landscape. It's interesting when you really see in all this technical knowledge that these local soil and water people have and they design this stuff, you're, you're just like, wow. I never anticipated that much water move through here. Jeff, how do watershed plans affect nutrient management decision-making? Yeah, you know, I, as I've been sitting here listening, and, and Wayne, you did an awesome job of really, you know, introducing things and, and starting to make a few connections. Um, you know, as a person out here, uh, Jack, that, that, you know, does research on these things and tries to help farmers do some implementation and, and at least get their, their feet wet uh, and uh, figure out, you know, is this practice going to work for them? Um, a lot of it kind of comes down to, you know, doing it in people's backyards and, and getting, you know, enough knowledge and information out there to the landowners, uh, to the local watershed districts and, and the county people. Um, one of the big 
challenges, uh, you know, and I, I don't think really Wayne nailed it uh, hard enough, but, you know, there's lots and lots of practices out there that I'll talk about a few of them here in a minute, but, uh, you know, at, at our county offices, I know here in, in Redwood County, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't ever feel like, like we have adequate staffing in the offices up there to be able to get people to be able to address all of the needs and the questions that everybody has. And, and, you know, there, there ends up oftentimes, you know, being a limited pot of money and, and then, you know, people who are willing may not be at the top of that list. Uh, so there's, there's some complicated nature into, uh, you know, implementing practices on the landscape, but, uh, you know, you know, here in Minnesota, we've got a lot of different things. And I think Brad's going to talk about a few of the more nutrient management cover crop types of things, but I've been doing a lot with edge of field things over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, you know, we've looked at things like controlled drainage. We've looked at uh, constructed wetlands. Uh, we've worked with bioreactors. We've worked with ditch management, whether it's, uh, you know, an unmodified ditch or, or a two-stage ditch. Uh, uh, we, we haven't done a lot with saturated buffers, but you know, one of the things that you, you, you think about when, when you talk about these different types of practices is keeping in mind that, you know, they're all voluntary. Uh, there are lots of cost share opportunities because many of these uh, are standard practices with NRCS as conservation practices now. So in, in many cases, farmers can, can find money, uh, sometimes up to 75% cost share uh, on installation of some of these projects. Um, and, and so, again, you know, it, it then kind of comes down to thinking about uh, a number of things. Um, is it going to be appropriate for somebody's farm? Uh, you know, is, is it going to be cost effective? Is it going to do what they actually want it to do? Um, you know, over the years, we've done quite a lot of work with uh, controlled drainage and controlled drainage uh, is a practice that works really quite well uh, in modestly dry years. It can, it can provide uh, an increase in yield where we're managing shallow water tables uh, in a field. Um, it does require active management. Uh, so we can see increases in yield with that, but it doesn't happen every year. And, uh, uh, but from the water quality standpoint, when we think about multiple benefits of these practices, um, every year we've seen when we've done this, uh, a water quality benefit. Um, so it, it sounds like a great practice and, and it is where it can be applied. Um, the challenge with a thing like controlled drainage is, is that you need to have a really, really flat field, less than 1% slopes in order to do this. Um, and, you know, a lot of our fields here in, in southern Minnesota, in the Minnesota River Basin in particular, um, historically have been drained. And uh, they, you know, if they have any kind of slope to them, they weren't necessarily set up. Uh, to, you know, be able to put in a practice like that. So um, it requires a little bit of, of re-engineering uh, and retrofitting to be able to make systems like that work. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that we've, we've done quite a lot of work on over the years is, is our constructed wetland research. And, and I know my colleagues, I'm communicating with them often down in Iowa um, that, that actually restore a lot of wetlands. Uh, and, and they've modified some of what they've done over the years. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have the same challenges that they have had in terms of, 
you know, we, we live in a prairie pothole region. And so farmers may be reluctant uh, to, to put a, uh, you know, restore a wetland, for example, in the middle of a field that they have to try to farm around. So, you know, when, when Wayne was kind of talking uh, uh, earlier today uh, about, uh, you know, working in watersheds, you know, targeting practices and targeting not only the practices, but where to locate them is going to be really, really important because, you know, wet, wetlands, uh, you know, are, are great filters and kidneys on the landscape. You know, we, we can see that, you know, very easily we can meet some of those federal 45% reductions in nitrogen and phosphorus, actually, um, by, by having wetlands or constructed wetlands on the landscape again. You know, they, they're, they're great. Uh, they have multiple ecosystem services. So, you know, they're, they're benefiting water quality, uh, but they also provide habitat. Uh, I know that, uh, I know Brad's a hunter like myself and, and, you know, having those little spots of habitat out there for pheasants and ducks and other, other things like that is, is, you know, advantageous to people who are sportsmen and women. Um, but again, you know, we, we've got to be cognizant of, you know, strategically locating those kinds of things on the landscape. Um, you know, bi bioreactors is something that we've worked on. We've got a couple of different generations of bioreactors. Bioreactors are highly efficient in treating the water that flows through them. Um, the, one of the challenges with them, though, can be that there can be during relatively high flow periods, so there can be bypass flow. So all of the water that's coming through a bioreactor, uh, bioreactors just can't handle the really, really high flows uh, because they have a limited storage capacity in those bioreactors. And so um, work is ongoing to improve those, uh, but they can, they can reduce nitrate uh, down to basically almost zero coming out of those bioreactors. Um, again, you know, those, those are strategically located you know, along ditches and things like that. So they're really not interfering uh, with, with farming operations. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can see that there are, there's some potentially really good opportunities with those. Um, saturated buffers uh, are, are a new, relatively new technology. Uh, most all of the work that I'm aware of has been done by my colleagues down in, uh, in Iowa. Um, basically, a, a saturated buffer is, is essentially a, a controlled drainage system, but where water is drained from the field and then reintroduced into a, either a grass or uh, a riparian type of a buffer. Uh, and then that water is allowed to kind of saturate that soil and uh, we allow the denitrification process to happen naturally through those essentially high organic matter soils along the edges of these ditches and streams. They've been very, very, very effective. Uh, again, uh, you know, not really temperature has not affected those. We've seen uh, the research data come out that we get, you know, 60 to 90% reduction in nitrate uh, as these things uh, operate throughout the season. There's lots of great multiple ecosystem services from them because, of course, we're maintaining these, these buffers along the, uh, the waterways, the water courses. Um, so that provides additional habitat. One of the challenges that uh, that we do uh, know and are aware of with saturated buffers is, is that you need to have a bit of slope uh, on the landscape in order for these to actually function properly so that you don't have to be too concerned about, uh, you know, bank instability uh, along a ditch, for example. Um, when you start to saturate some of those, if you don't have enough slope, so the hydrology is moving you know, at a, at a decent pace to the ditch or the stream, um, 
if the water becomes kind of too stagnant, the, the, the transport through there is too slow, um, you could get slumping of those banks. So there is a requirement uh, for having a relatively steep, I'll say, slope coming into those. So in really, really flat landscapes, they're not going to be probably working quite as well. Um, the, the, the last practice that, uh, that, we, that we think about a lot um, and we've done a lot of work on uh, our ditch our ditch work. Um, there's been some two-stage ditch work uh, across the upper Midwest and here in Minnesota, basically where, uh, you know, a, a normal ditch is, is, is over-widened and a, a low flow channel is allowed to develop uh, in there. And then it basically will have a, a higher channel that acts as a small floodplain within the ditch geometry. Um, these are highly effective. Uh, again, lots of ecosystem services. They're, they're great for managing sediment add nutrients as well, uh, particularly nitrogen. Again, one of the challenges with uh, a two-stage ditch is, is that uh, um, although very effective, uh, they do take land out of production and they're relatively expensive to build. Um, and, and so, you know, there are some trade-offs with that. Um, along the same line, we've taken a different approach here at Lamberton where we're just trying to use the normal ditch geometry uh, without actually going in and over widening. But what we've done is, is we've put in some minimally invasive, very low weirs. They're a little, essentially like a little check dam, not more than a foot tall. Um, and we're trying to, to just get some temporary storage of water in the ditches. And using that technology, uh, we've seen, you know, upwards of around 60% reduction in nitrate uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and um, uh, we've seen some pretty substantial reductions in phosphorus. So there's a, there's a big suite of practices that are sort of edge of field things that, that farmers could target uh, in watersheds in order to try to you know, meet some of these water quality goals. So Jeff, maybe you can speak a little bit to this too about the need to do more than just those edge of fields. Uh, at the agency, we, we do a lot of monitoring and we understand that um, in most cases, in most watersheds, it's three to five events a year that um, result in most of the loading to it. And, and as you said earlier, these, some of these practices bypass that point. So as farmers, they, you know, it's great they're putting them in because it helps the overall, but they just can't stop at that. They, they have to put another practice and they can't just oh, I've got a saturated buffer in, now I can do whatever I want to in my landscape. And you, know, you want to talk about a little bit of that a little bit, or does that bring us right into the next topic of nutrient planning? Well, I, I want to chime in here just for a second, Wayne, and that is uh, our research has shown time and time again that if we over-fertilize corn, you leave that extra amount of fertilizer pound for pound behind in the field. And so really, I think it all starts with applying the correct rate of fertilizer, because a lot of these practices are looking at trying to remove nitrate once it's in the water. Uh, the simplest thing we can do is not put it out there, and particularly when we don't need it. With well, as expensive as nitrogen is, um, that's really where things kind of start at. Um, and, and so all the practices that we've been examining, you know, across the board, uh, you know, the nutrient management stuff may be in a little bit different category because that's aiming at trying to really uh, zero in on the best 
practices uh, to, to get the correct amount and at the right time and so forth. Uh, and from there, though, the stuff Jeff's talking about and then all the soil health stuff, you know, particularly like the cover crops where we're trying to recover residual nitrate and keep it out of the water and so forth. A lot of that's contingent on reducing the amount that we're trying to get to pick up in the first place. And so that's kind of where it starts. Yeah, you know, great, great question, uh, Wayne, and, and nice follow-up there, Brad. I, I absolutely concur uh, with what, what Brad said. You know, at the end of the day, Wayne, um, the, you know, the, the, there's no substitute for good nutrient management, right? And, and I, I spend an immense amount of my time uh, trying to educate people, mainly non-farmers, uh, people in the non-farming community, to try to understand that, you know, you know, year in and year out, there, there's lots of reasons why, you know, starting with nutrient management, uh, you know, we, we've, we've, we've got to, you know, make sure that the farmers are following the recs. And, and uh, I know Brad's going to chime in on this, but the things that I talk about were, you know, the, 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 the magic number coming out of a field is not zero. We know with, you know, rainfall, high organic matter soils, whether there's fertilizer there or not, we're losing nitrogen out of a profile. And, and so our goal is, is to try to help augment uh, some of the nutrient management and other practices on the landscape uh, to try to mitigate these problems and, and keep farmers from having to be regulated. Yeah, I want to just put a little wrap on this uh, topic that, you know, I mentioned earlier in my introduction that I work a lot with the corn growers on trying to be proactive on these issues. And I think uh, farmers and those in the ag industry uh, need to take a look at the overall situation, take a look at some of the what's transpired in the last decade, 15 years, and see that there's plenty of people willing to and ready to enact uh, regulations on this. And so um, if we want control of, of uh, how this plays out, we're in the position to do that right now because it's all voluntary at the moment uh, uh, and we can pick what works for us. Um, however, if we don't as an industry uh, get a hold of this issue and start doing some things with it, uh, we're, we're probably going to be told how we address it, whether it's what we want to do or not. Yeah, and that's the great thing about the plans. It, it really looks at a local level what's going to work versus coming out of St. Paul saying, you shall do this. And we're a very diverse state in climate and land use that it just doesn't work. So that's why voluntary compliance at the local level is, is the best option here. Um, and also, um, I think contrary to most people's belief, the PCA isn't looking for crystal clear drinking water in every single river. Uh, if you actually look at the Minnesota River for sediment, what the, our, our standard is, it's pretty dirty water yet. If you were to look at a glass of, uh, of uh, Minnesota River water at the standard, you'd be like, oh, I wouldn't drink that. That looks pretty cloudy. So uh, know that we're not looking for that crystal clear drinking water in every single river across the state, that it's still going to be some dirty water. It's a young river system. It's still moving soils. Uh, and we understand that. So uh, I, I don't want to give anyone the impression that we're looking for that drinking water in the Minnesota River because it won't happen. What should farmers know about edge of field and nutrient management planning uh, in relation to water quality goals? 
Well, I already mentioned this just a little bit that a lot of this is going to be kind of on on uh, farmers' own plates and and those in the ag industry. Uh, there are programs which will pay for and assist with nutrient management planning, but every farmer has some sort of a nutrient management plan, uh, whether it's well planned out or whether it's just simply I'm doing this year with the same thing I did last year. Uh, I think what's really key, though, is as I've already mentioned, is to engage in this issue uh, and, and and get down to the point where you're doing things as best as you can. Uh, um, I, I in one of the the committees I'm serving on now, which is advising the the rewrite of the state's nutrient reduction strategy, which will happen in 2025, uh, we looked at a, a chart that that one of Wayne's colleagues, uh, Dave Wallhead, that looked at the number of practices that have already been put in place, and the goal on how many they think need to be put in place. And nutrient management uh, was the one with the the largest bar for the goal and the smallest number for the number of practices. However, um, we all have to recognize that the number of farmers getting paid to do nutrient management planning is very small while everybody's doing nutrient management planning. I mean, everybody's, as I said, everybody's figuring out what they need to, to, uh, to put on. And so from that standpoint, we're never going to go out and capture or measure what individuals are doing, but we will see the results. And so uh, I think that's really the key is uh, take it upon yourself to, to understand what the issues are locally and what your part of it is. And uh, as I said, if you over fertilize uh, pretty much pound for pound, it ends up in the field. Uh, Jeff mentioned the fact that we haven't seen great changes in the, uh, the fertilizer use report, uh, that's accurate, although some of the, the national ag statistics uh, survey data, I think the last time we did it, was been, it's been almost a decade now, but it did indicate that about one-third of acres were receiving over what we would consider recommended rates of fertilizer. Um, there's justification for that in some places. We know that sandy soils require higher amounts because they got lower organic matter and so forth. Um, but uh, but there, there is some stuff out there that's just simply getting too much, and, and uh, uh, that's a good place to start is, is addressing that. And I think sometimes, it, you know, we get a lot of people doing the right amount, but is it the right time? As a farmer, I, I grow sweet corn for the local canning company and uh, putting nitrogen on is a, a big cost of that to me. So I know if I were to put nitrogen on and I, usually I get a later planting. So I'm planting in that mid to late June timeframe for my sweet corn. Um, so for me, it makes more sense to put my nitrogen on the spring. If I put that same amount of nitrogen on the fall, uh, I see a huge risk of losing that in that May to June timeframe that even before I put the seed in the ground, I may have lost nitrogen. So for me, I can put the same amount of nitrogen on and get a better crop if I put it on right before. So, I mean, those are the things that people need to look at and see if they can help uh, with that. You know, right, right along that line too, Wayne, when you, when, when you were talking about, you know, timing of fertilizing, you know, fall versus spring, for example, one of the things, you know, having been a person who's been intimately tied with water and, and weather variability in the climate for the last 25 years of my my work here in Minnesota, you know, it, it's, it's so highly variable, you know, when we, when we look at the last five years alone, right. So, you know, we, we look back at, at 21, 22, we had two years of a drought. Um, you know, the, the, the crops performed, you know, fairly well uh, above expectations in a lot of cases. Then you look at 2020, it was one sort of a nearly average year for most people here in the state. And then you look at 1918, 
17, 16, you know, we had really four really basically wet years in a row. And so, you know, it, it, it makes it kind of a, a bit challenging because water is going to be the driving force in, in everything that we're talking about. Right. And so, you know, we may be able to go out there and, and uh, you know, the farmers, you know, give, we give them recommendations. They, they go out and they do the best that they can. And then all of a sudden some, you know, one in 500 year event happens and it flushes a whole lot of nutrient right down the pipe and into the river. You know, it's, it's hard to manage for some of that because we're not engineering our systems uh, to be able to handle those kind of extreme events, if you will. Yeah. And it comes back to, you know, what's the farmer situation? What's the local co-op situation? I have a luxury small farm co-op close by that is kind of free at that time. So I'm able to put that fertilizer on, you know, a day before I'm planting. And, uh, and I totally understand that if everyone went to right before they plant, we don't have the infrastructure uh, to put all our nitrogen on in the spring. And as you said, looking at the last 10 years, uh, how many times were we running into late planting because there was never two days in a row that it didn't rain. Uh, so I, I understand that, but it really, how does each one in each individual situation, what's the best scenario for them to adopt is what they have to look at. They just can't say my neighbor does this and it works for them. Um, what's something that they could do that they can make a difference. And to me, it's putting on my, my nitrogen a day before I plant. All right. Thanks for the great discussion, guys. Uh, any last words from the group? No, I just want to thank the, thank you for inviting me to this. It's been great to talk about it. Um, it's, it's bringing awareness to the issue and that, you know, a, a lot of times I know fingers get pointed at certain people, but in reality, if we want better water quality in the state of Minnesota, it's everyone's responsibility to take their part and do their best that they can. That it's not just farmers who need to make a difference. Granted, they're the, the largest land use uh, in Minnesota as a whole, but you know what? It's the, the, the rural lands homeowner that does it. It's the lakeshore owner. They all have a part to play in this, and we have such a big problem. We all have to play a part in it. Thank you for being on on this podcast too, because I think the the sort of the background information and sort of you know maybe for some of the farmers who might not be aware of you know what goes on behind the scenes within the watersheds and and how these plans are developed and executed and all of the little nuances. Uh, I think that was really really valuable. I'd just like to remind everybody that we'll be on the road with our advanced nitrogen smart uh, sessions. The uh, new session on reducing nitrate loss to water uh, it will be in, in several locations. You can find the full schedule at the website z.umn.edu slash nitrogen smart. Okay, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>